Okay, well, it's great to be with you. It's a full house, hey? Fantastic. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We're gonna, it's going to come up on the screen. And as you're finding that passage, I want to ask you a little question, which is, have you ever been in the situation where you're, you're talking to a child, maybe if your parents, one of your kids, or somebody in your extended family, and you think you're having a straightforward conversation, and then they say something to you which is either very profound or completely hilarious? You ever had that kind of moment? Yeah? So I was just thinking about this message. I was remembering a moment when I met one of Stephen Deb's uh, nieces. I lived in their house for about a year, and I met Esther. I think she was about three at the time. I don't know if you remember this. But um, so uh, she was in the kitchen as this little girl, and I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty good with little kids, I assumed. So I walk up to this child, and I said, hi. I think I even crouched down, because that's supposed to be how you do it. So I crouched, I said, hi, what's your name? She said, my name's Esther. She didn't make a whole lot of conversation back, so I was like, oh, that's a really lovely name, blah, 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 blah. And I said, my name's Phil. And she looked me straight in the eyes, and she goes, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Which wasn't really quite, wasn't really quite the response I was looking for, Another kind of story was, I remember uh, my wife Sarah was praying with one of our children when they were a bit smaller, I think at bedtime, and at the end of the prayer she said, Amen, and he said, Amen, and so she said to him, do you know what Amen means? And he said, yes. She said, well, what does it mean? He means, that's, when you, that's what you say when you want to stop other people from praying anymore, <laughs> so, which is not theologically quite correct, but effectively that's what we do, don't we? People are praying for far too long, we start going, Amen. Amen. Enough already. God's already heard you. You can stop now. Amen. Kids are funny, but they're also very profound, aren't they? They ask you difficult questions at times. Have you ever noticed this? Questions that sometimes we don't have the answers to. They ask you about life and death and about, you know, about how can God be three and one at the same time and how does that work? Or they ask you, why did God create pigeons? Which I think is one of the, the great theologically unanswered questions of our time. And uh, I remember one conversation with one of our kids where, they, where he said to me, you know, Dad, one of the things I think is hard about being a Christian or about having faith is believing in someone I cannot see, right? And I remember him saying that to me, and I remember thought, you know, that is true. And I had to say, yeah, that is hard. Belie- belie- having faith in someone you can't see is hard. And yet, I said to this child, I still believe in him. I have come to a point in my life where I believe in Jesus and I believe there's a creator, even though I can't see him. And a good number, maybe many of us in this room, have come to a point in our lives where we have done the same thing. We came to a point and you just heard people, or seen people get baptized and heard their stories who have got to the point of saying, yeah, that's what I believe. Even though I can't see him, I believe in him. Many of us have made life choices, sometimes challenging decisions based on the belief that even though I can't see him, I still believe in him. And I want us to read a story now out of the life of Jesus from Mark chapter 10 about a man called Bartimaeus who could not see Jesus and yet reached out to him as part of his journey. All of us in this room will be on a journey. Some of us have come to a point where we've come to faith Maybe others of us have been Christians for a long time. Maybe some of us are here and we are asking questions. We are seeking or we are wondering, is there more to life than I can literally just see? 
Bartimaeus reaches out to someone he can't see because he believes just maybe there is hope that Jesus could be an answer to his life. So this is what happens in Mark 10. It's a short passage. They've been in Jerusalem. They've now come to Jericho. That's, they're not far apart. And they're walking through Jericho, and this is what happens. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. I like that. He's got to the point where he doesn't really care what people think anymore. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now, this would have been one of those days where, you know, that Martimaeus would never have forgotten for the rest of his life. It was a moment where everything changed for him. And yet, the day began just like a kind of normal day. That may be what your day has begun like. It's just been a normal start to a day. Bartimaeus is begging. He always begs. He's sitting where he always sits. He's outside the city. The reason he's outside the city is because people don't want him any closer. He's an embarrassment. He's needy. People like him are not allowed any closer. He has to sit outside. And He's blind. We don't know how long he's been blind for, maybe from birth. We don't know. But what we do know is that he lives his life in darkness. He can't see anything. He lives his life in total darkness. Now, when you read a story, any story, but particularly when you read a story from the Bible, what you find sometimes is that you will naturally associate with certain characters. Now, I don't know who you associate with in this story. Possibly not Bartimaeus. But I want to suggest to you that we have more in common with Bartimaeus than we may first realize. And that is because I think we are prone to blindness. Bartimaeus is physically blind. We may not be physically blind here, which is a blessing if you're not. But all of us, I think, are prone towards blindness. And our society, in many ways, is prone towards blindness. When we really stop and think about it, we realize that often we do not see the world the way it truly is. In other words, we live with a degree of self-deception and denial about actually the reality of our lives. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, there's a little verse that says exactly this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. We can, in other words, we can tend to deceive ourselves about what's really going on inside us or in our world. Now, some of this self-deception is just funny and light. It doesn't, it's not that important. I, for example, uh, live with a bit of self-deception that one day I have this kind of hope, this utopia, that one day I will arrive at the moment where I manage to finish all the tasks on my list. Anybody else live with that hope and desire that one day? Anybody like to write action lists? Come on, you can have a self... It's a confession time, but I'm not going to call you forward. It's fine, okay? So we write these lists, and I write far too long a list, hoping that today I will finish all these, which I never do. By the way, they breed... Have you noticed that? I will close my computer down at night time. I open it up and there's more of them. It's like there are rabbits in there. What's going on in my computer? I don't know. But we write lists. Anybody write lists? This is a funny one. We write a list and then during the day we do another task completely unrelated to our list. Yes. Okay, so what do we do? We go back to our list. 
we write the task we've already done on the list, and then we cross it off again. What's going on? We live with a degree of self-deception. But some of the deception and some of the denial is more sinister. So, for example, we can live our lives, can we not, placing value on things, giving time and energy and focus to things in our lives, which in reality are of little value. And because we do it, we miss the people who are of most value. If I was to ask you if having loads more money and buying more and more stuff was the answer to a joy-filled, fulfilling life, I suspect most of us in the room was, I'd quite like to try it, but actually most of us would know that's not true. It's not going to deliver to us what we most want. And yet, we live in a world, do we not, in a society which absolutely is devoted to the accumulation of more stuff and to try and get more stuff and to buy a bigger house until we can shove it all in. And we can dedicate our lives to that as well. We just get sucked into it like everybody else. Because we're kind of blind to the reality of what matters and what doesn't matter. What we find is the more we accumulate, it doesn't bring us more joy, but sometimes the more dissatisfied we become, we're a bit blind. Similarly, we can live our lives, can we not, believing that we are more in control than we really are. We kind of live as if we think that we are in control of the circumstances of our life and the events of our lives. If you like, we dictate the terms. And yet the truth is, sooner or later, something happens in our world where actually what is really real crashes in on the illusion we've built for ourselves. Maybe it might be simply that you reach a certain age and you suddenly realize that you're much older than you thought you were and time is flashing past and you can't slow it down. Or something tragic happens, or you get the phone call giving you the news that you never wanted to get. You had that kind of phone call? I've had that kind of phone call. And suddenly the illusion that I was in control of the events of my life is smashed by the reality that I'm not in control, half as much as I hoped I was. Maybe the greatest example of this is the idea of life and death. We all know that death is inevitable, and yet we live as if it's not, often. So as sad and shocking as like the news of a loved one dying is, sometimes we are completely surprised by it as well. We live in a degree of denial. Now, that hasn't always been the way. Previous generations where life was considered more fragile, that was not the case. I came across this prayer that parents several generations back would have prayed with their kids at at, at bedtime. This is how it went. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake... I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's a happy little prayer, isn't it? Now, I'm not suggesting you necessarily use that tonight with your kids, but if you do, here's the second verse for you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bless the bed that I lie on, four corners to my bed, four angels round my head, one to watch, one to pray, and two to bear my soul away. So, good night, Johnny. So, um, no, I'm not suggesting you use that. <laughs> Sweet dreams. I'm so scared, Daddy. Oh, don't worry, be fine. No, I'm not condoning that or suggesting that you should do that. It's a slightly morbid prayer to pray with your children as they go to bed. But it does at least communicate the truth that life is more fragile than we, it really, than we think it is. And the Bible would agree. Psalm 103 says exactly that. As for man, his days are like grass. I mean the legal kind of grass, okay? He flourishes like a flower of the field. We're in South London. I thought I'd make it clear. The wind blows over it and is gone and its place remembers it no more. It staggers me. I shouldn't have made that joke, should I? Anyway, okay. Sometimes I edit them out, mostly. But we live in a kind of self 
denial and deception about what's really true. Now, what's interesting about Bartimaeus is even though he is physically blind, he sees his situation in great clarity. For him, there's no denial. There's no deception. He knows, for example, critically, he can't fix his own life. He knows that he is in a cycle of physical and therefore social deprivation where he can't escape. He's exhausted all the options. He can't fix his issues. His life has not worked out the way he wanted it to be. He hasn't become the person he wants to be. He knows he can't fix it. His situation stares him fully in the face. And that, I want to suggest, is our situation as, as well, even if we don't realize it. Okay, we may not be physically blind, but the Bible says as difficult and awful a situation it is to be physically blind, there's a more challenging and sinister problem in in all of us, which is that there is a darkness that lives in our hearts. There's a darkness inside of us, which means we tend towards doing things and living things in a certain way, which is destructive and bad and unhelpful and unhealthy. And we all have it inside of us. Things in our hearts that we're ashamed of that we can't fix. Hurtful thoughts, bad attitudes, lustful thoughts, jealousy, Gossip, mean-spiritedness, self-centeredness. Now, I'm a pastor of a church. It took me about 30 seconds to write that list, and that's because those are all things my friends do. (laughs) No, they're in all of us, aren't they? Those things are resident in all of our hearts. And worse, things that we are ashamed of that we don't want to tell anybody about. And here's the big thing. We find we cannot fix ourselves doesn't matter how many diets we go on, how many New Year's resolutions, how many clubs we join, we fundamentally cannot change the condition of our hearts from which our lives spread. We can't fix ourselves. Maybe you're here today and you've realized the reality is dawning on you that there are issues in your life, in your heart, destructive habits you can't shift, insecurities you cannot heal, guilt you cannot shake, you want your life to be different, but regardless of whatever you do, you cannot fix it. That's a really painful acknowledgement. That's a difficult acknowledgement to acknowledge, I'm not where I want to be, I'm not who I want to be, there are things about me that I'm ashamed of, habits I can't kick, It's painful, but I want to suggest to you it's healthy as well, because it's from that place, from that acknowledgement, that you make a step, because you start to consider the options that maybe I don't hold the answers to my own issues. Maybe I was never designed to have all the answers. Maybe the answers aren't in what I can see and touch and feel and prove, Maybe life is more than what I can see. Maybe there is transcendence. Maybe there is a creator. Maybe there is an answer beyond my own heart, beyond my own abilities. It's painful, but it's healthy. In the end, we will never experience God fully. We'll never receive him if we think we have all the answers to our own problems. Bartimaeus knows He doesn't have the answers. So when Jesus is near and he hears he's coming through town, he shouts out his name, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He calls out for two reasons. First of all, what we just said, he knows he doesn't have the answers. He's acknowledging it. He's owning it. My life is not where I want it to be. I'm not who I want to be. And I don't have the answers to fix it. And I want somehow to get out of this cycle. That's the first reason. But the second reason is this, because he thinks just maybe 
Jesus may have an answer for him. See, Bartimaeus has heard something of Jesus' reputation. News has reached his ears. He can't see him, but he, he has heard something of his reputation. Today, you would have heard something about the reputation of what Jesus can do in people's lives. About how God met people in different ways at different times. And how God has done something and changed their lives in a way that they could never change it themselves. We're not selling something here. We're just trying to invite you to understand that's what people's stories are about, that Jesus has come and done something in people's lives. And Bartimaeus has heard this news that he's doing stuff elsewhere, and he's heard the reputation. In fact, Bartimaeus calls out, he says, Jesus, son of David, that's a messianic phrase. In other words, that he, Bartimaeus knows this is more than just a man who does kind of clever stuff. He's got some kind of inkling that this could be like a savior or someone who could come and change his heart fundamentally. I want to suggest to you that's where spiritual searching starts. All of us in this room will be in different points of this journey. Some of you, you've been Christians for years. Some of you are seeking. But all of us begin this journey by going, my life, my heart is not where I want it to be. I, I can't fix it. And I'm not sure if Jesus, I'm not sure if he's all that he says he is, but I'm Maybe there's some hope here. Maybe there's enough hope here for me to reach out and find out. That is why Bartimaeus shouts out Jesus' name. He doesn't have the answer and he sees hope. He hears of hope and he calls out his name. And then the most remarkable thing happens. Jesus hears him. Jesus sees him. And Jesus stops now, we miss this in the story. We just read the story, we miss it. Because you think, well, of course he does. No, no, no. You have to understand, Bartimaeus is a man who's been ignored all his life. No one wants to listen to him. He spent most of his life with people just trying to pretend he's not even there. People cross the road when they see him. He asks for help. He begs for money. And people just want to leave. They want to just shove him outside the city so we don't have to, we can just pretend he doesn't exist. One writer said about him, Bartimaeus isn't just blind, he's invisible. He's an invisible man, and yet he calls out, and the one person who hears him is Jesus. Jesus hears him, Jesus sees him, and Jesus stops. See, if you want to give, if you want to communicate value to someone, what do you do? You give them your attention, right? That's how we communicate value. You look at them. Children know this, don't they? If you have, if you, if you ever, you know, had little kids or you know kids, it, they will be doing things, and sometimes they'll go, watch me, watch me. Yeah, they'll be playing a game, and, show, and that's fun for about the first three times, isn't it? And then after that, it becomes slightly relentless. Okay, I'm watching you again. Look at my phone. Okay. I mean, but they want you to see them because they know if you look at them, they are feeling valued. Babies learn this from an early age, don't they? About week five, they start to smile. But before that, they're working out. This face, and my, this responding to my face, psychologists call it attunement, apparently. That they work out there's a responsiveness here because they're giving me their attention, they're turning their face towards me. Attention is a powerful way of saying to someone, you're valuable. That's why in a relationship, the ability to listen to someone is so important. Because when you hear someone and you give them attention, you listen to what they're saying, you're saying to them, you're valuable. I don't know if you've ever been like with someone that you love in your family and you've ever been in some kind of conflict it could be someone close to you. It could be someone who's sitting right next to you right now. And some point in the conflict, someone in that conflict moment will say to them, you are not listening to me. You ever heard that phrase? I've read about it in books about other people's marriages, apparently, okay? 
And they'll say it because they're saying, give me your attention. Value me enough to kind of lean into my world so you get me. To stop, to attend to, to hear is one of the great communicators of value. And one of the amazing claims of the Bible is God hears us and sees us and attends to us. God turns his face towards us. For some of us today, that is all we need to hear in this room. In the midst of whatever you're walking through today, whatever you're anxious about tomorrow, when you get that test result from the hospital, you need to know his face is turned towards me. He hears me. There's a, there's a passage in Numbers 6 that we often read at dedications. If you've ever been to one of our dedications or if you've been to a christening in another church, it's like a, it's like a blessing that we read and pray over children um, and it says this. It's going to come up on the screen. Maybe let's read this together. It says this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. When we pray that, when we read that, what we're saying is we're trusting and hoping, God, that you will see us, hear us, that you know me, and you'll turn your face towards me. In fact, you will shine on me. When someone shines, when their face shines, well, it's, like when it's like a picture of delight when they beam. It's what people do when they see the, the bride walk down the aisle. It's what parents do when they see their kids perform in a school play. It's certainly what parents do when they manage to get that kid to sleep at bedtime at night. Faces shine and beam when they see something beautiful, when they see people they love. And Jesus stops and turns and turns his face towards Bartimaeus. See, Jesus is the master of seeing people that everybody else wants to ignore. Maybe you're here today and you feel like, I'm totally irrelevant. People want to ignore me. Jesus is the master at seeing people other people ignore. He spots a tax collector in a tree. He feels the touch of a woman who should never have been in the crowd, by the way, because she should be outside as well, who touches the hem of his robe in the middle of a crowd. He pays attention. He sees her. He feels her. The most repetitive promise of the Bible is this. I will be with you. Dallas Willard, who's an American writer, is dead now, but he was a a great thinker. And he wrote a book, and he talked about in it about the Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel is the word you often hear, the title you often hear used at Christmas, describing Jesus' coming to earth. God is with us. He says the whole story of the Bible is basically about the Emmanuel principle, God's desire to be with you to be amongst us, to dwell amongst us, to know you, to stop with you, to turn his face towards you. That's the story of the Bible. You may not be able to see him, but you can know him. So Jesus stops and he calls. Bartimaeus comes over. And then Jesus does one more thing which is really surprising, and it's not the healing We kind of expect Jesus to do the healing, but it's how we get from here to the healing which is surprising. Jesus does one thing, and that's this. He asks Bartimaeus a question. He says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Is it just me, or is that an odd question? I thought it was completely evident what, what Bartimaeus wants, right? He's blind. Everybody in town knows he's blind. Jesus knows he's blind. Jesus knew him before he turned up. Jesus already knew about him. Jesus has just physically seen him staggering over to him 
having to be helped to find him. He knows he's blind, and yet Bartimaeus turns up, and, and Jesus says to him, what do you want, Bartimaeus? Why is Jesus asking the question? Well, the only explanation is this, I think, because the question is not for Jesus' benefit. The question is for Bartimaeus' benefit. Sometimes God asks us questions. What do you want? Right at the start of the Bible in Genesis, God does the same thing with Adam. Adam sins, Adam and Eve sin. They are in rebellion. They hide. They've eaten the fruit. They should never have touched it. They hide because they know they're shameful and they're in guilt, which is where we all are before we meet Jesus. And God knows what has happened. He knows exactly what's happened. He knows exactly where Adam is. What does God do? Well, he doesn't come in the garden and go, Adam, come out. What he does is he walks into the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? He asks him a question. Why is he asking a question? Because even in his rebellion, even in the midst of his kind of nastiness and sin and all the kind of rubbish that you and I get into, even in the midst of it, God is giving Adam, graciously handling him the opportunity to withdraw and stay hidden or to step forward and reveal where he is. See, Jesus asks Bartimaeus a question because basically he's saying to Bartimaeus, I'm giving you the option. You can basically stay withdrawn from me and hidden from me in terms of what's really going on in your heart or you can step forward and reveal who you are. You see, it's not really a question. It's an invite. Jesus is asking, Bartimaeus, do you want to stay the same person? Do you want things to change? Do you recognize that you cannot solve the darkness you live in? Do you believe I can change you and that I can heal you? And I think God asks us exactly the same questions. Do you want to stay the same? Do you want things to change? Do you recognize you cannot solve your own darkness? Do you believe I can change you? Do you want me to try and come and heal you? And Bartimaeus looks at Jesus as best as he can and says, I want to see. God asks us questions. I think maybe today God is asking many of us in this room a question. What do you want me to do for you? Maybe today God is asking you the same question he asked Adam. Where are you? Where are you in your life? Has your life worked out the way you want? Where are you in your heart? Are you the person you thought you'd become? Or have you just never been able to kick that habit? Have you realized that you don't have the answers to your own issues? And are you maybe thinking there could be hope somewhere else? Where are you? What do you want me to do for you? And as he asks you the question, he is allowing you two options. He's allowing you the option to stay hidden and withdrawn. But also he's inviting you. He's inviting you to step forward and to reveal where you are because it's in the stepping forward, right? It's in the calling out. It's in the acknowledging that I'm not who I hoped it would be. It's in those moments where you realize, as I express hope in him, that that is where change starts and where healing starts to come. Let's stand together. We're going to pray.